Well, welcome to the fifth in the series of our bite-sized webinars. Today we're talking all things planning and in particular in relation to the changes at the end of last year in the use classes. This podcast will be in two parts. Part one will look at the new class E in operation and part two will look at some pointers for landlords and investors. I'm joined today by Dr Romola Parrish who heads up our planning team. Romola has extensive experience in planning and environmental law. She sits on the City of London Law Society Planning and Environmental Committee and amongst other things she has lectured for a number of years on both planning and environmental law matters alongside her busy commercial planning caseload. The government announced radical reform to the planning system back in June 2020. The political background to this is all the things that we've covered in previous webinars, the challenges that have been faced by the high street um, and which were faced at the time continue to be faced today. The growing number of void units and the feeling generally that this is not good for town centres, it's not good for growth and the planners have felt it's not good for development. Changing economic and social environments need to be reflected in how we use and how we need our commercial spaces. The main change in the use classes was to include a new class E, which is now some sort of superclass, if you like, of commercial units. So to start this off, Romola, perhaps you could let us know what does the new class E use do? Well, it is it is quite radical. Uh, class E groups together a broad range of uses into one new use class, class E. So that a retail shop, professional services such as a bank or building society, cafes, restaurants, offices, gyms, nurseries, health centres and all sorts of other high street uses. The old class A, class B or parts of class B and class D uses are now grouped into the same use class. And the key point about having all these uses under the same umbrella is that a building can now change all or some of its floor space to or from any one of these uses without having to get planning permission. So formerly, of course, there were limited changes of use between different, for example, class A uses, but that's now greatly extended. Offices or parts of offices can turn into gyms which are open to the public, they can have retail units or a retail shop that's no longer viable can be turned into a cafe or a restaurant or a gym or a nursery or a health centre, all in the same building. So it does open up enormously the easily accessible range of uses from property, it applies to part of the building so you don't have to change the whole of your building into a new use. Um, you can split it up into different floors, which now have much more flexible and multiple uses within any, any one building. So it's extremely flexible on the face of it. Um, I mean, we'll be discussing um, how in, in some ways perhaps not as flexible as it initially seems and the different restrictions around actually the operation of the Class C. In this podcast, we're going to talk about planning side type restrictions. Um, and separately in our podcast number two on this matter, we'll be looking at some other restrictions that um, that it can apply at property or lease um, or title title level. But perhaps if we look at on the planning side and kick off on that front, um, can you start to take us through some of the restrictions on the Class C freedoms and, and, and in particular around um, uses and works? Yes, certainly. Uh, now, local authorities are used to being able to control how many gyms or restaurants there are, for example, or the proportion of retail shops to other frontages on their high streets in order to maintain a balance of uses. 
And because of this unrestricted class E flexibility, the council lose some of that control. They can't so easily stop people taking advantage of these flexibilities. So there are some restrictions embedded into the system. So first of all, you can't benefit from another class E use unless the building is lawfully being used for its current Class E use. So you can't use Class E to regularise an unlawful use. And I know that that's a sort of gap in the legislation, which I think people have been quite keen to try and exploit, but it is a door that is actually closed. Secondly, it only actually relates to the use of the premises, not to any works required to facilitate that use. So if those works require planning consent, such as external works, changes to shop fronts is, is a classic example, or works relating to listed buildings or in conservation areas, then you will need planning consent for those works. And that means the council will still have some degree of control. Yes, and the use versus works difference is a very useful clarification, actually. Class E obviously gives an incredible amount of flexibility, but you have to acknowledge that there must still be some controls. Um, Romula, what about Article 4 directions? As a non-planner, uh, Article 4 directions have always felt like a bit of a dark art um, to me, but do they still have a role to play and how would they come in in relation to these checks and balances? Well, Article 4 directions have always been the Council's defence against free-range changes of use. Um, Article 4 directions take away a permitted development right. So when the permitted development right to convert offices into residential accommodation came in, there was a whole swathe of councils, particularly in London, who immediately applied for an Article 4 direction to disapply that permitted development right. So if you wanted to change an office into residential um, and an Article 4 direction is in place, you need to get planning permission. So councils seeking to retain some control over their neighbourhoods, over the balance of uses in their high street, may use Article 4 directions in order to restrict the full range of conversion possibilities that are allowed in Class E. So they may want to ring fence certain uses like a gym or a retail shop that they won't allow premises to be automatically converted into or out of. And those changes which are excluded then require planning permission. And the big problem is that it, it creates a tension because there are two conflicting kinds of policy. Central government wanting to increase flexibility and the local authorities seeking to keep control over their neighbourhoods. And in some circumstances, the need to keep that control is in fact a need. It's not just a meddling want, but they need to retain some kind of control over the high street. And it's a classic example of that would be historic high streets such as Bath or Stratford-on-Avon, where the balance of uses and frontages and what they look like, the nature of the neighbourhood itself, is very much part of the, the inherent intrinsic attractiveness of that area. And in those particular cases, Article 4 direct may be particularly important. So interesting and I can I can really see that conflict there that you've then got between national policy um, but your local needs from a planning perspective. Yes, uh, planning has never been a one-size-fits-all, and that's why the whole framework approach has been so necessary. But the trouble of that, of course, is that it leaves so much to the discretion of a local planning authority. And obviously, Article 4 directions are one of those areas where they may or may not be allowed by the government in the future to exercise that discretion by limiting the range of Class E flexibilities, which the government has actually granted. 
And as I mentioned before, um, in particular localities, for example, Bath, it may well be that there is more leeway for them to take advantage of Article 4 directions to restrict the freedom of Class E than elsewhere. And of course, that raises the question is that in those other places, having high streets, which are more clearly market driven and market responsive, having that flexibility inherent in them and allowing them to change is in the current government's view a good thing. But for developers and landlords, it's not so simple and actually raises issues of uncertainty. That's right. And we're going to come um, on to looking at property restrictions next time, um, where all this flexibility is coming from and where it's going and what it means for landlords, developers and, and investors. But Romola, thank you very much for giving us that introduction. Um, and we'll leave it there and pick up in part two in relation to landlord and investor considerations. Yeah, thank you.